Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Like I said, we'll be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 9. Uh, after spending quite some time in, in chapter 8, I mean, it is a quite a large uh, chapter trying to break that down. Hopefully for a couple of weeks we'll be in uh, chapter 9. I think uh, before we look particularly at chapter 9, I think maybe an illustration might uh, help us to try and understand uh, something that is going to come up in this uh, portion that we're going to look at tonight in uh, verses 1 to uh, 9. But imagine a, uh, a man finding uh, a car in a barn, and, and this car has seen uh, better days. This car is, is covered in dust. Uh, old vintage car, you can imagine whatever car you'd like, depending on your style. Maybe you've uh, ignored already, you're tuned out, you don't care about a car. Uh, but maybe one with a big V8 engine. In my case, maybe a small uh, Mini Cooper S, you know, around the 1964 model with the round uh, headlights. But, but that's not the important part. The important part is that there's a, a car that needs help, a restoration to it. Again, this car has seen better days. It has traveled many miles the seats are torn, the tires are deflated, and not just merely need air inside them, but even if you were to pump air inside them, nothing would hold. The tires have been sitting there uh, for quite some time crumbling. The body has uh, missing parts, rust in, in some certain areas, and his father looks at this car and, and says, this car will be perfect. And uh, he, he pays the owner, he pulls it up on a trailer, and as he hops in his car, there's a small child sitting in the car seat, asleep in this car. And, and over the next course of years, this father uh, does this car up. Uh, when it sits there in the garage, but uh, as they have time and have they, as they have a little bit of money, this father spends his days uh, seeking to be able to prepare this car. The engine once more runs uh, the body is fixed, parts are replaced, and then finally the day comes. That child who was small in the, the back seat of the car is uh, seen his uh, or her father work on this car uh, throughout the days, and, but now uh, this child is old enough to drive. And the father turns around and says, this car is not for me, this car is for you. And he reaches out to be able to hand this child the, the keys to this car. But before he hands this child the key, he does has a very important conversation with this child. He says, this car is still in my name. It will be yours forever if you can look after it, if you know how to drive responsibly, if you follow the rules that I have explained to you. He goes over how to look after the car, how to be a responsible driver, a responsible car owner. But if you do not, this car will remain in my name. It will be stripped from you. You will no longer be able to drive this car. You will not be able to keep this car. Now, this is a great honor for this child, a great responsibility, a great sign of love and dedication of the father, and also a great responsibility of his understanding towards this child. That this car is not merely just a car, you know, going into a lot and purchasing it. It, it represents something. Uh, the father's love for this child, the de- dedication, the sacrifice. And the father makes sure that this child knows this. 
as he's gone over the rules and how the car needs to be looked after, the, final, the child finally receives the keys. And the child drives off as the father watches. But he does not know the outcome of this situation. What is going to happen to this car? What is going to happen to all those years and dedication, the price? That all of this hangs upon one word, one small word with big implications, if. If the child looks after this car, if the child drives responsibly, and what happens when that child does not? Now, obviously, this is an illustration that serves a point, um, mainly that that big word, if, is a huge part of chapter 9, and actually, as I will point out, actually a huge part of the book of First and Second Kings. If all the time from Second Samuel chapter 7 when God spoke through Nathan the prophet to David and told him about what his son would do, about his kingdom and his throne, the house in which he would build. And all of it has been building up into this point. Who will be the son that will sit on his throne? Adonijah? Another? Solomon? What would Solomon do? How would he construct this house? And after the great height of chapter 8, the king and his people truly worshiping God at the newly constructed temple, celebrating in the Feast of Booths, that promise in, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, that unfolding promise that was revealed at that point and even before then up until this time when now it is finally fulfilled in Solomon. And uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 1 to 5, And these are the statutes and the rules you be careful to do in the land that your Lord, your God, uh, the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess. All the days that you live on the earth, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess uh, serve their gods, on the mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces the pillars and burn their ashtarim. With fire you shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You're there to go in and they're there to do a certain thing. Now notice a couple of things that will come up in this passage. It's not merely that they have a place in which they worship these false gods, but their name is attached to that place. But also notice that here the Lord is giving them this land that I have given them to possess in verse 1. And he explains that you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of the tribes and put his name there and make his habitation there. There you shall go. He goes on to be able to make sacrifices. And this temple is that place. And now the people see this temple, the, the temple Solomon has done, how will they use it? Will they use it to be able to honor God? More importantly, how will the king guide the people? The temple will be a barometer of the people's love for God. Like the child, how he treats that car, understands his love for the father, the dedication which has gone into it. Again, it's not merely just an automobile. It is a sign of God, uh, the Father's love for them. 
And in verse 9, we see that here that Solomon has finished. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build. So here in chapter 9, one of the key themes, particularly in the second half, which we'll look at next time, is the Solomon's building, his accomplishments. But here he is finished building the temple of the Lord. He's finished building his house. Is what uh, has been the, the focus of all this time in these chapters that we've spent. In the 480th year, the people came out of Israel and the land of Egypt. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. Here now he has finished the house. He's reigned four years. He's uh, built his house for about 13 years. He's built the house in seven years, roughly about 20, 24 years into his reign, as you see in verse 10. Is one of the accomplishments that is, is highlighted right at the start of his reign. Took Pharaoh's daughter, brought her into the city of David until he had finished the, building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. You see at the end of chapter 6 and the start of verse 7 where these numbers come from. Here the, the seven years in building the temple, the 13 years in finished his entire house. There, there might be an overlap in there. Again, uh, 9 verse 10 explains that uh, about in the 20th year of his reign, he, he goes through other building projects. So after this time, uh, the Lord appears to him again. We see in verse 2, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. Now two times, this is a very similar conversation. Much has been, uh, much is repeated and that's very important in this process to be able to understand what is going to happen. To be able to be warned once is one thing. But to be warned twice doubles what then happens to that. It shows the emphasis of that warning. In chapter 6, uh, we find out the Lord speaks to Solomon during the building of his, the temple. Uh, you see that in verse 12. The word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning the house that you are building. It's during that period of time, somewhere in that uh, seven-year time when he's building the temple. This, the word of the Lord comes to Solomon. So it's, it's different from the Lord appearing to him before he builds the temple to now. Um, he appears in chapter 3 and then he appears in chapter 9. But he only sends the word of the Lord in chapter 6. And here he tells him that he will walk in my statutes, obey my rules, keep all my commandments, and walk in them. Then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So here you might say there's three then witnesses at the end of uh, church uh, in uh, Corinth. Uh, when Paul is writing, he says that he's visiting them the third time. And on the third time, this is just building their case. He's building a witness, um, and each time he's witnessing their sin. And that warning then comes. So now it's the second appearance, which is again important as we think about what is going to come in, in chapter 11. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. So again, the, the heightened sense of that warning coming. 
Now before we begin, at specifically at what this warning is for Solomon, we need to also take a, a glance at ourselves and think about how many warnings we actually heed. We must see that warnings in Scripture are always come from grace. Warnings in Scripture always give a chance for a person to be able to repent. The Lord in Exodus, as we'll begin, gives Pharaoh more than ten times this chance for Pharaoh to repent and let the people go. But he refuses. One time he does falsely repent. But we also need to be careful then when we read warnings to think that tomorrow is a good day to address that warning. The grace is shown to us today. We must see and heed those, um, that grace today. We cannot say tomorrow. I will turn to the Lord. Now we have a long section in verses 3 to 9 of what actually the Lord says to Solomon. So instead of trying to break that up, which we will do when we study it. I'm going to read it all together, and then we'll look at it in parts after we read it. But uh, 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 3 uh, to 9. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will uh, be there for all time. As for you... If you walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. If, but if you turn aside from following me, you and your children, and do not keep my commandments, and my statutes that I have set before you. But go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among the peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Every passing by, everyone passing by it, will be astonished, and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and lay hold on other gods, and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. It begins on quite a positive note, of, as we remember in chapter 8, the big part, the big central portion of that chapter is, is regarding Solomon's prayer, Solomon's plea that he prays unto the Lord. And the Lord answers his prayer, and the Lord tells him in verse 3 specifically that he has heard Solomon's prayer and your plea, and he has placed his name upon this house that Solomon built. His eyes and his heart will be there for all time. As Solomon prayed in chapter 8, that he would be there night and day, looking towards this house, that his people prayed 
towards it, that his name would dwell there. And here, the Lord answers him and says, yes, I will do that. I will answer your prayer. But in verse 4, he turns now specifically to Solomon and says, as for you. Now, there's two parts of really what God says. You might do three, the answer to prayer in, in verse 3, but really two parts where he firstly, first directs himself. The Lord speaks to Solomon. He speaks to Solomon and, and tells him in verses 4 and 5, As for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, keeping my statutes and my rules. Then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David, your father, saying, You shall not lack a man of the throne of Israel. He is to walk before the Lord. Again, he, he is not merely a king who gets to make up his rules. He is a king underneath God the king. Now, we've walked, touched on that before in chapter 3 and, and chapter um, uh, 6. But what I want to primarily point out at this point that is helpful as we continue to go through the book of Kings is here the measure is that you are to walk before me and specifically as David your father walked. That David becomes a measuring stick of how kings are walking before the Lord. That they are to walk with integrity of heart, with uprightness. And this refrain comes up over and over again throughout the book of Kings. Kings are compared in what they did in the sight of the Lord, whether they were evil or whether they were good, but also if they walked in the way as David walked. You see this in just before in verse 9, we, we read before with the Lord being angry because Solomon turned his hearts away. But here in verse 6 of chapter 11, So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. So here again, it is David is then the stick in which they, walk, they follow. In, verse, uh, in chapter 15, verse 3, and he walked in all the sins that his father had did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as his heart of David his father. Again, this repetition comes up. David is the one in which the example is followed. This repeated line that comes up through the book of Kings. Now, what we need to be reminded here is David is not then the perfect king, for we know that David was a sinner. He committed adultery, he murdered Uriah the Hittite, he covered it up, he lied, all these things that uh, the psalmist actually writes, David actually writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. And he goes on to write away when he tried to hide his sin that his bones wasted away. That David never claims to be a perfect person and thus we need to understand that that what this refrain happens to go through, it's not heightening perfection. It's heightening David as, as an example of a man who walks by faith, who does walk in the ways of the Lord, who does sin, but he also, when he sins, he repents. 
So again, that question will come up throughout the whole book of Kings and 2 Kings. What type of king will Solomon be like? Who would he be like? Is he going to be like David, his father? Or is he going to be more like Saul? But we also see a change here in verse 6. But that second way, that second part of this. What happens if they do not walk like David? It's not merely then a change from something positive to something negative. But also there's a shift here as a change from uh, the king walking to the people and the nation of Israel. The king walks like David, it's a positive. But here the negative shifts to the plural. In verse 6, it says, But if you turn aside from following me, so here you speaks of Solomon, you and your children, so now we're looking at a family line, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, that you there is plural, but go and serve other gods and worship them. So here you see the importance of the king, the king walking in a godly manner, following like David, but also has ramifications for himself, for his children, and for all of Israel. Now how does God then summarize the commandments that he says? What is he looking for? Or to put it another way, Often we think that when we think of commandments, what we think of is the last six commandments, the second table of the law. How we relate to our neighbors. This is the barometer in which we look at society and say, are they good or bad or evil, whatever that might be. Now Jesus does explain there are weightier matters of law. Here the the Pharisees are tithing on their mint and cumin, but yet they're neglecting the weightier matters of law. The justice is one big thing that prophets tend to look at. But again, that's a barometer of the people of Israel, how they look after those less fortunate than, than them. But here I think it is important that when the Lord here is warning Solomon and the people of Israel how they're to walk in God's ways, the key part is how they worship and serve God and Him alone. This is key throughout the prophets. Not merely that the people are out there murdering, killing, and, and, and stealing, all the other sins, but here, worship of false gods is central. And then that leads to those implications of doing those other evil things. And I think this is really vital for us to be able to understand. The worship is not something that we do and carry out in an hour. Worship has drastic ramifications of how we live in our day-to-day lives. That who we worship then changes our view of life and how then we interact people. You think about it, if you worship yourself, that has ramifications of how you deal with other people. You get angry at them when they don't worship you. You get angry at them or upset with them when when they're not helping to serve you. Or if you worship money, that, that would affect how you interact with other people. You see people as either giving you money, taking money from you, a positive net gain or negative 
thief or uh, taking from you. You become who you worship. Again, the issue that faces Israel is not merely moral issues. They are very apparent, are very clear. But the root of all of these is a worship problem. When they worship the false gods, they come and take on those principles of those false gods. Now, gods in these times were abrupt, cruel. They'll change on a, on a dime. They'll, um, dimes weren't invented, but you get the idea. <laughs> but, but they would change. They, their moods would swing depending on how they got treated. And so, too, they would start treating people like that. There's a great book by uh, uh, Beale, and it's called We Become What We Worship. Basically, the whole premise of that book he sums up right in the opening chapters when he says, conversely, we will also discover how people are restored to true worship of God in reflecting his likeness. Therefore, the main thesis of this book is what people reveal they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. So again, you think about how we worship, and we worship God, and we worship all of who he is, his attributes, his character. And those things become beautiful to us. His goodness, his holiness, his justice, his truth, his righteousness. They become things that we seek to, to look forward to and, and virtue have virtues in our life. Or Martin Lloyd-Jones says, A man's God is that which he lives, for which he is prepared to give his time, his energy, his money. That which stimulates him and rouses him, excites and enthuses him, enthuses him. Here, who we worship has a vital effect on how we spend our time, our energy, our money, our passions. And the key in all of this is worship. Again, think about that time, the promise in Deuteronomy chapter 12, which we come back to time and time again. They're to go into the promised land the Lord gives them. And they are to get rid of all the false worships, and God is going to be there in their midst so that they might be able to worship and serve Him. He says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. They are to worship God in the way God prescribes in His law and His word. You see this time and time again. that They take on the... the uh, as they worship false gods, they take on the, the other gods' um, character. What does God say when they enter into the land? You are to be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So what will happen if the Israelites turn and worship these false gods? We see this in verse 7 to 9. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among the peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passes by it will be astonished and will hiss. Here the word there, he, he is going to cut them off. 
Now, this is the exact same word which is used for a covenant. And what would happen in a covenant is, is that two people would walk through an animal. They would cut the animal in two. And they would walk through. Normally, there was a, a suzerain and then a vessel. A suzerain was a king. And the vessel was the person who, who sought to be able to give something, their land, their time, their money to the king. And the king would offer them something in return, protection. And they would walk through this animal, and it was symbolic that the, whoever breaks their part of the covenant, that would happen to them. A visual reminder that this is what is going to happen to them. Normally, is the vessel the one with the less to be able to give. If you don't pay us our dues, you won't get protection. You will be like this animal. And here God says that I am going to cut you off. You're going to get taken out of this land that I've given to them. That this house that I've consecrated for your name, I'm going to cast you out. No longer you would be able to be there. That Israel will become a proverb, a byword, an example just as, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah become an example, not for good, but for God's judgment, so too Israel will become a proverb, an example to all those who walk beside. Now, when we think about what we've just spent and spending all our time in the past few months, speaking of the beauty, the splendor, the size, the scope, of the temple and all of its furnishings. Hear what a a twist and a turn when the Lord warns them that it will become a heap of ruin. It will become dust. Think about Solomon, all the time and energy he went into building, preparing. The cost, the labor, the time, again, the energy. And here, Solomon is told, it will be a heap of ruin. And the people will walk past it. And again, this this heap of stones will be an example. God casting them out. People would hiss. No, this appears in Job chapter 27, verse 23. It claps its hands at him and hisses at him from its place. It's a, a sign of uh, an insult that is given. It's like when you're reading through Shakespeare and, and, and they would say something along the lines that I bite my thumb at thee. And that was a form of insult. Now we can think of maybe other gestures that would be insults. Um, don't mean, need to uh, explain any here. But here to, to hiss was to be able to do that. To be able to show that there's, there's something wrong. The temple which is that the testimony of God and His promises. But what will become of it? A place which God set apart that the people might be able to worship Him becomes an example. And even outsiders, as they look at it in verses 8 and 9, they will look at this heap of ruins and they will say to each other, Why has the Lord 
done this to the land and to his, this house. Then these outsiders will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and lay hold on other gods, and worshipped them, and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this disaster upon them. Here it becomes an example of God's judgment upon them. That God calls them out from Egypt, from slavery, not merely just to be free men and women, but they are then to serve the Lord. That's where the Ten Commandments start in Exodus 20. That I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore you shall have no other gods before me. The basis and foundation is God's redemption first. So we see here this really is a summary of what has gone before. And the big question, which is overarching in all of, of First Kings and chapter in Second Kings, that all of it hangs on this two-letter word "if." What will happen to Solomon, to his children? Will they worship the Lord? Will they walk like David walked? Will there be a king who obeys and follows God and his ways? Now we know the answer. We know that there's good kings and bad kings. Now as we read through, we get our hopes up with some kings. We're let down with others. Overall, we see bad kings come and bad kings go. There's a need for a king like David who walks in God's ways with integrity of heart and uprightness. Again, we know the outcome. It doesn't take long. You can turn to 2 Kings chapter 25 and at the end of 2 Kings chapter 25 you see and on to the end you see exactly what God had told would happen. You read through Ezekiel, you read through Jeremiah, you see the destruction of the temple the pillars that are large and massive in size torn down to the ground. But this is important why we then turn to a book like Matthew where um, Matthew begins the gospel. He points out that Jesus is Abraham's son, David's son. Whereas Timothy, uh, Paul does to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 8. Remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. The king who comes with integrity of heart, with that uprightness. Where the author of Hebrews points out in chapter um, 1, but the son, he says, not the angels, he says to the son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions. Here specifically he is speaking of son, that that son who comes, the radiance of the glory of the Father. The author of Hebrews points out, and this is Jesus he's talking about. 
that his kingdom is one of uprightness, the scepter of his kingdom. That he loved righteousness, he hated wickedness. This is important why Jesus goes in Matthew chapter 4 and he's tempted in the wilderness. Here Solomon will be tempted with all of the best things at his disposal. Wealth and wisdom. But he doesn't walk in the ways that God lays out. He fails. He falls short. Just like Adam in the garden had all that he needed to be able to succeed and yet he still failed. Whereas Christ in the wilderness does not have all he needs to be able to succeed besides that he is not born of Adam. That he passes, he is obedient. He walks in God's ways. Even greater than David. He passed that test in the wilderness. That is why Matthew points out that he's tested in the wilderness. He obeys, he walks in God's ways. Satan even says that if you uh, bow down and worship me. Again, these, the test, the barometer, worshiping God. And Jesus says no. He passes the test. Then after this, Jesus goes and he preaches his first sermon. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That here Christ comes to lead the perfect kingdom. Not like Solomon who will fall and fail. Not even like David, the best example (laughs) that comes up with the king, the measuring stick of a good king. Who murdered and uh, lied and and, and, um, committed adultery. That's the measuring stick that we have. But Jesus comes, the much better king, to be able to rule his kingdom. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.